0: Thanks for listening to Rare Bird Radio. I'm Doug Cooper, author of the award-winning fiction Outside In and The Investment Club. This podcast is sponsored by Rare Bird Books, based in Los Angeles, a publisher of 50-plus books per year, distributed worldwide by PGW. Today, I have the pleasure of being in conversation with acclaimed and award-winning Ron Colby, actor, director, writer, producer of both theater, film, and TV, and author of the recently published Night Driver. And also, as we'll learn more about, a former taxi driver, welcome, Ron.
1: Well, thank you. Nice to be here and uh, in your company.
0: Yeah. So, so Ron, I just really enjoyed Night Driver, and you know, we're going to focus more on you know that in our conversation. But with such an amazing catalog of work and experience, I mean, we could spend hours on stories from past projects, like your work on and off Broadway, on the Outsiders, Godfather Two, some kind of wonderful. She's having a baby lush life and on and on and on and on. Um, but like I said, I'd like to focus on the writing, um, but I'm sure some of the past will creep in anyway as we chat. But so as I, I read the book and in between readings and research about you, the one thread that runs through everything you've done and are doing with Night Driver is you're a storyteller. How would you compare and contrast you know, your approach as an author writing Night Driver to the other mediums and your roles on different projects? That you've worked on
1: as far as uh my work you know i primarily considered myself a playwright in the beginning and then a screenwriter although i haven't had a lot of success at being a screenwriter in new york all the plays i wrote were produced in one venue or another nothing uh, magnificent but uh significant at the time and uh my screenplays you know just uh fell off the cliff out here which is very easy to do there's a blizzard of screenplays written every year and so finally uh i always wanted to try my hand at a novel and uh but that's a a, a different experience as uh, you will attest so um Finally, I just got into it. I hiked up my skirts and did it. So this was based on an experience I had about 30-something years ago and uh, always thought, well, this is a great milieu, you know, a great venue, a great uh, minefield to explore in terms of a novel or anything else for that matter. And uh, so I set about doing it. But uh, there were a lot of interruptions along the way, as you might imagine.
0: Yeah, you know, and and one of the things I I really enjoyed about the writing was the simplicity and 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 your descriptions. And and I thought I didn't know if that come came from you know writing sc- screenplays, but how how you set up scenes. And as I went through the chapters, I kind of noticed that. I was always struck by kind of the last sentence on a lot of the chapters. And I was just curious, when you're doing your prose, I mean, and you're setting up a scene, are you focusing more on the first sentence or the last? What do you think you spend more time on or does it just flow?
1: Well, that's a good question. I've never contemplated it, frankly. Uh, I just do it, you know, but it's always good to end with um uh, with a strong sentence if at all possible and also to help lead you into the next scene because uh, it doesn't just end there there's always something else following hard upon
0: when i was reading and you know i'll just use the the first chapter as an example but for people that are reading you'll find it through throughout like you know chapter one starts out you know nick cullen couldn't believe he was there you know and i just i just love the simplicity of how it just kind of jumped in and then you know at the end it was in the slanting sunlight their long shadows reached out across the oily blacktop beckoning nick to join and that just really i mean like you said it just kind of really drew me in and always made me want to go to that that next chapter and i cu- couldn't help but think as i'm i doing it i i was thinking of delivering a punchline, and i was like boy i bet ron's a really good joke teller because he can really deliver a a last line
1: Well, that's uh, flattering. And uh, now that you mention it, you know, of course, it was a deliberate action. Uh, Aren't a hell of a lot of laughs in this book, but uh, there's a lot of other stuff.
0: Yeah, I thought you really captured, you know, the haunting loneliness and possibility um, of the night. You know, having lived most of my life in in urban areas, I spent a lot of late nights in cabs on the trek home and. Reading, I felt like I was back in the back seat, you know, staring out the window, rocking back and forth to the bumps and turns right along with Nick. And, you know, after so many years, I know you said this this project took a lot of years, um, you know, from when you really had these experiences. And, you know, how did you recapture it and sustain it through the, you know, renditions and rewrites? Because I just thought, you know, just always felt like I was in the cab right, right with Nick.
1: Well, I had a very vivid idea of where I wanted to go with this, and uh, in the beginning, and uh, it was difficult to pick up in between. Um, I, you know, I'd be going along. Suddenly, I'd I'd get a job. And next thing I know, I'd be in Mississippi, uh, and uh, or some other place, and in the film world as a lot of people will attest they think it's very glamorous and this and that but it's 14 and 16 hour days at least for somebody like me and uh, so the idea of tinkering with your novel while you're away is uh, impossible but so then i'd come back and uh sometimes i'd pick it up and sometimes i wouldn't and also i had explained to a couple of people that uh I'm not above stealing from my own work. And so I'd get a little tired of this book. And I think, well, you know, I could, I could capitalize on this in the film business right away, maybe. And so I wrote a, a comedy, a uh, half-hour situation comedy. I didn't write the whole thing, but I did an outline. It was called Taxi, Taxi. And I went around town pitching it. William Morris here and there. And uh, the next thing I know, uh, a couple of big producers uh, went in and pitched the idea and walked out with a deal. And that was called Taxi. They threw away one of the taxis in the title. And then there was something else. And then uh, only about seven years ago, well, maybe less than that, I wrote to uh, the head of documentaries at HBO. And uh, I'm You know, I am a filmmaker, and so I had this idea of these mini cameras inside the cab and so on and so forth, and uh, shooting this cinema of and next thing I know, there was taxicab confessions. So I said to my late wife, I said, that's it. I'm just going to sit down and write the book. (laughs) Right. I took some months off and wrote the book, and that's what you have in your hand.
0: Yeah, well, it definitely doesn't seem like there was a lot of, you know, time in the development because like I said it just pulled me back in and I'll I'll just share another one of those lines that just really really hung with me and it's as he left the tourist section behind him the boulevard before him darkened into a long black corridor randomly sprinkled with harsh white lights nick gripped the wheel and plunged in you know just really just captures everything that I think the book and, you know, just, you know, made me go right to that next chapter.
1: Well, yeah, you know, the guy was on a quest, our character, Nick. And yep. uh, so sometimes he'd lose sight of it a little bit, but mostly he was a driven, driven man. And, uh, you know, people say, well, how could he sustain that? Or why would he even do that? Because most people... You know, when something terrible happens, they call the cops, which he did do, but uh, then they they tend to turn and leave it to others to deal with. But uh, I don't know, I was a New York City kid and uh, there was a certain code and there were certain things you didn't leave to other people necessarily, especially when it was so personal and you had actually seen the perpetrators. That makes it very real. And uh, he had some notion that he could actually find these guys in a city of millions and in a country of millions because these guys didn't say put. Anyway, so he stayed on it.
0: Yeah, so, you know, as I was reading, you know, obviously he's, you know, kind of driven by his revenge. But as I got into the story, you know I started questioning you know is, is it the revenge you know what's fueling that revenge is it did he feel like his wife had saved him because it seemed like when they had met he was kind of going down um, pretty self-indulgent path and and she righted that pretty quickly so I was just kind of wondering what did you think his his motivation was he trying to revenge that because he felt he owed it to her because she had saved him? Or was it just the love of, you know, his life that, you know, gave, gave him, uh, you know, gave him his, his his happiness?
1: Well, it was she who gave him his happiness. Uh, he wasn't a particularly happy guy before I, that. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, dealing with what he dealt with and that's why he kind of went off the track and started doing a lot of drugs and things. and. She basically gave him uh, not only his life back, but a new life. And he was happy, you know? He had a wife and he had a kid now, and uh, things were not good in terms of his career. But he had the notion he could get that back. And so suddenly to have that all plucked from him uh, was, in a very horrible way, you know, was enough for him anyway in terms of revenge.
0: Yeah, you know, and another theme that really hung with me throughout the novel was the transactional nature of the exchanges. Um, You know, obviously, driving, um, you know, shift driving is just one transaction. You know, when you're driving a shift, it's just one transaction after another, which fit perfectly, you know, for Nick's mission. I mean, why do you think when people are hiding or in pain, they're drawn to more transactional jobs and lifestyles?
1: I don't know. I don't know that they actually are, but uh, to contemplate that, uh, well, the cab for him, you know, served a purpose uh, for hunting and uh, it may not be the perfect thing. I don't know. I guess he could have hung out on a couple of street corners and waited to see who passed by, but uh, the cab made sense for him. and. I think in the beginning, he didn't really want to communicate with these people. They were just a means to an end where he could look out through his lens, as he calls it, uh, the cab windshield and and hunt. But as these people came into his cab, he obviously had a really good instinct for people and he could shut them down or turn them off or draw them out. And uh, that's a skill. And, uh, I think it worked for him in terms of, uh, finding things about himself and maybe about, uh, where the murderers might've been, but
0: yeah, I, th- I thought, you know, there's, was, there was just an anonymity to it, you know, that, or that it provided. And I think, you know, you just hit on, I'm, I remember one of the, the lines, you know, that he was talking about how he liked it because, you know, he was able to exchange, thoughts and feelings you know and if he felt like it he could become involved you know for the duration of the of the ride with really little risk because he knew the the ride uh he knew the ride was ending um so that i think there was a certain anonymity anonymity to it um as well
1: yeah absolutely and uh that really made the job perfect for him in that way Uh... And so I don't think there was any relationship that really continued except for Irene, the prostitute. Yeah, And, uh, that was primarily because she would call him, uh, in the beginning, at least so.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the relationship between Nick and the detective, Detective Pearson, um, working this case. So Pearson's son. Uh, was in jail. He obviously cares about his son, but he was still really angry. Um, And he compares Nick to his son, uh, Wayne, early on. And, you know, he says you could look at their faces and and see trouble coming. Uh, What made you decide to have Pearson's son in jail?
1: Well, these guys go along and uh, we don't know much about them. And I tried to think you know what would motivate him and several things motivated uh, this detective one was uh where he let this guy reginald uh go and he turned out to be the actual murderer and reginald turned around and murdered people after that and uh and he had done it a couple of other times and so in terms of his son he could have pulled a couple of strings and everything but he thought well I'm gonna just let this one ride out. And uh, any, you know, he had a good instinct when another cop, uh, rather crooked cop, volunteered to help out. And uh, he just let the son do his time. And uh, none of us are perfect, you know. We all have uh, with our with our children. Uh, I'm old enough to be able to speak to that and. Uh, my sons are very successful uh, financiers. But you know there's a time in their life where maybe something else could have happened and uh, and it did once once or twice. and you you have to uh, let them learn the lesson. We'll put it that way.
0: You know an interesting parallel there with you know my my second book book, The Investment Club, which is set in Las Vegas about these five broken people who meet at a blackjack table and it's about their lives, what brought them there. And, and, and one of the people is a retired New Jersey police officer. And, and one of the things that's really haunted and, and, and um, impacted his life with his and his wife is he had a son and, you know, they had found a duffel bag of drugs in the room, you know, right around his 17th birthday and, and being the, A dutiful cop and wanting to teach his son a lesson, you know, he had turned, had turned him in and let him go through the process. So, you know, I can definitely relate, you know, I kind of was thinking about that and, and people were saying, Oh, what do you think a a real parent, you know, would, would do that? And I said, Oh, sure. There's a lot of people that, you know, they're going to let their kids go through and, and know that if they intervene, they could be causing more trouble down the road, that certain lessons, as as you said, you know, are, are, are best learned firsthand. Yeah. Well, uh,
1: I like the Pearson character. I've known i I've known a lot of detectives in my life, but I have known some in New York City and been involved with them on uh, certain cases and things. That fortunately I was not the perpetrator on, but. Uh, I find them to be uh, very interesting and potentially conflicted people. And so Pearson, when he lets Nick go at the end, it seems that it's stacked up with against, his, against maybe his best uh, wishes and not best wishes, but instincts. But he had to do it and uh, at the end, he lets the fish go. So some people will say, well, how come he gave up fishing? And I think that's part of his personality where after a while he just feels sorry for these
0: guys, the fish included, and uh, lets them go. You know, he was really hard on Nick, you know, early on. And, and then I think, you know, as you talked about that, that act at the end, you know, it really showed his, his growth you know his growth and change it really i think gave him more depth yeah well
1: thank you for that
0: another you know another aspect of the writing that i i noticed Omnon is you had said you're from new york and you know when there was scenes or you know when you were talking about new york or relaying, um stories about new Yorkie in the book you used like stickball reference you use very colloquial similes and metaphors and I noticed you really were able to do that you know where the action was kind of happening there was always a connection with you know how you were describing it I mean is that something that you did consciously or does it does it come out do you go back and layer that kind of stuff in because I found it really you know again added another dimension to the writing
1: no, to tell you the truth, Doug, there wasn't a lot of layering in, I don't think, on this book. It was just part of the deal. But, uh, you know, you grow up there, especially, you know, we're we're talking about a time, you know, if he started driving a cab in 1974, right after the... Uh, Carter election, uh, then you project forward to that, you know, we're talking uh, the 60s and 50s. So that was a different time everywhere. And uh, but that had its own language and uh, milieu as opposed to, you know, things today where we're electronically uh, inundated, as it were. Um, so, I, I I was just happy to go back and find a simpler time, if you can imagine that. Yeah. I'm, uh, it's much more complicated today. I don't know how I could write this book today, uh, or let's let's put it this way, set it today, uh, with all the things that are available to us. You know, you just punch in where you want to go you uh, call whoever you want it's everything is so convenient that way and the difficulty of uh, you know managing those simple tasks back in the, before the electronic revolution here um, was a different deal and uh, yep. and I liked it
0: so how, how did you did you use um you know, again, kind of on, you know, there's a lot of, lot of driving, you know, traffic, you know, where, and, and it just flowed naturally where you're using, obviously the Los Angeles as almost like another character as with the streets and, you know, all the, all the movement. Um, Do you just have that working knowledge of the streets there from, from spending time there? Or, I mean, did you use any technology to kind of check your routes or a map or how did you how did you capture uh, all the all the turns and streets and, and everything?
1: Yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't all that detailed uh, you know I did a picture up in Hollywood we had an office right there in Hollywood Boulevard and so recalling you know all those twists and turns that Nick did uh, there I knew those streets and the same with many other streets uh, we had uh, there was a my secretary, you know, way back when I was at Warner Brothers—I mean, excuse me, Paramount—working uh, on those John Hughes movies, um, she had a boyfriend. Later, her husband, and he is a cameraman. I know him from American Zoetrope. He was part of our cinema, electronic cinema package there, and uh, he kept saying, "You know, Ron, we got—we just." take my video camera, and we go out at night, and we got the cab, and this was way back in the 80s, and uh, and we could just shoot this book. I didn't have the book completed, but I had hunks, you know, and uh, and she, as my secretary, was helping me with it, all this, keeping the pages organized, at least. And uh, that was always the idea, just go out at night and uh, shoot this thing cinema verite and so the fact i never got to make it as a film um was a big disappointment to me and people say to me today well are you gonna take it to hbo you're gonna it's like i don't really care (laughs) I (laughs) I, i just no i'm i'm beyond that now i don't care i'm happy to have the book out there and uh you know if the bell rings uh I'll I'll pay attention to the sound but uh right now I don't care
0: yeah it had to be satisfying just you know after the years to to just get the story out to get the story out there um you know and and I know when I when I was reading I think Nick you know he commented on how the job you know slowly drew him out that all the people he dealt with, you know, like were real, that were like real objects, the roads, the buildings, the cars made him feel more part of the world, you know, and and you talked a bit earlier about how, you know, he was a photographer and you know viewed the world through a lens and then when he was a taxi driver, he had a different kind of lens, you know, the the windshield. You know, do you think he had a natural detachment to his approach to life and and then the the murder just completely kind of severed him, or did that kind of attach him in a different way?
1: No, I think uh, I think it was kind of a natural uh, photographer. You know, there are some people have to work at it and uh, and think, oh, isn't it cute? And there are other people. You know, just uh, the camera is part of them. Uh, I remember somebody said about Steve McQueen, you know, you watch him with guns, you know, pistols and stuff. And it was never a big deal. It was just a part of him, the way he would handle a gun as opposed to other actors like, oh, I got this gun in my hand. And uh, so... I, I think there are some characters like that that can just adapt it and the fact that you know at a very early age he saw this the possibility with the camera and uh, that and he just gravitated toward it uh, you know there are these incidences in in people's lives where they're going along all of a sudden something comes out of left field and all of a sudden they say I'm going to be uh, you know, a nurse or I'm going to be a this. And I remember being on a camping trip when I was 14 with a friend of mine and we're lying in a hammock and all of a sudden he comes in and he says, I'm going to be a geological engineer. <laughs> and I went, oh, okay. I didn't really know what that was practically. and. Uh, he did. He became a geological engineer, Colorado University of Mines, uh, went all over the world through Turkey, North Africa, looking for oil. Unfortunately, he found it uh, for
0: a lot of people, and uh, he's still doing it. So, it's interesting. Well, that, yeah, that's fascinating. That's fascinating how that, you know, and, and, and very, very fortunate at that age, you know, that something clicked for him on that that camping trip. And uh, and just dialed dialed into it, um, you know, as I like I said, as I was, as I was reading and, and just um, all, all the scenes at night and really it, I started thinking as I'm reading it and it really drew me to something I had written um, probably. 15, 20 years before, I actually went back through. It was a poem back when you know everybody thinks they can write 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 poetry. I guess. Uh, did you ever have any any poetry that that you written? Ever go through a poetry phase?
1: Oh yeah, of course. Uh, I've I've had a few published, and it was interesting. You know, there are some friends of mine, a friend of mine has this thing called Word Theater and uh, here in LA, and uh, they read books by, they have authors show up and uh, read from their books and so on and so forth, but they had a poetry thing and you had to be published to be able to, uh, so I had some poems pub- pub- published, but they were published uh, in uh, the Super Leptus Environmental Magazine and uh, I said, well, you know, if you aim low enough, you might just hit something. (laughs) Nobody laughed. And I read these poems, and that was the end of that. And I also have uh, a book. I was a golfer at one point in my life, and and I made a documentary. I had owned the rights to Michael Murphy's book, uh, Golf in the Kingdom, which is a cult classic book it has been a continuous print for 30 something years, and uh, maybe longer. And I tried very hard to get this movie going. And uh, I wrote a screenplay on it. And Clint Eastwood and Warner Brothers ultimately bought the book. And of course, I um, bought my screenplay too. And of course, they never made the movie. Uh, but I was so frustrated by that experience, of uh, not having a maid, that uh, I went. And I made a documentary called Scotland's Caddies, and uh, it's somewhat amusing. And these caddies are great characters. I'm always drawn to, you know, outside mm-hmm. characters. And uh, and it was very nice. And then I wrote uh, 18 golf poems, and I was going to turn it into a book, which I never did. But, uh, so there are 18 golf poems around one named, you know, one for every golf hole, of course. And, uh, so, and they all have different personalities, the holes rather, and the poems are different. So.
0: Oh, that's, that's, yeah, that's interesting. I know the, the one, the one that I kept coming back to me, you know, was, was something that I had written called after hours and, you know, it was, it was the, you know, the dark night intrigues me, the morning attacks me. I long for seclusion. I fear the exposure. Allow me to vanish and exist in your thought. And as I'm and, you know, just again kind of back to that anonymity and and those words just came And I hadn't looked at them and I, you know, I used to be much better at, at keeping a journal. Now I do so much online and, you know, on the computer. But, you know, it was going back through these journals and Looking, and there was so much that I, you know, that I found, and um, you know, it's it's interesting that you said it was a, a lot of that catharsis, because I think, you know, and that you even did other projects to um, kind of move through stuff. Have you always turned to your work for, uh, you know, to to work through things, to to find deeper meanings in in what's happening to you around you?
1: I like that poem, by the way, Doug. Uh might try something with it again anyway uh, yeah I don't know I, I you know it's sort of an easy way to go I guess you know where, when you're blocked one way you turn around go another way and I guess I'm a very stubborn guy and uh, yeah. that's got something to do with it uh, other people would maybe just walk away uh, exhausted but uh, I like to if I have something Good. I like to keep after it. And uh, so, one incarnation or another, it's uh, Scotland's Caddies. Uh, if I couldn't make Golf in the Kingdom, which was a, a whole other deal, um, kind of a metaphysical comedy on golf. Uh, but the Scotland's Caddies, they're just um, a funny bunch of characters. And uh, I had known some or less you know, let's put it this way, I've been to Scotland a few times and played over there and had caddies and uh, these guys really impressed me uh, with their with their wit and their ability to withstand weather and all of that stuff. And uh so it was a logical extension to just go make something. My wife said to me, she had a show that ran for ten years. She was a production designer and so every year she would get about six weeks off between shows and she'd turn to me and say, well, where are we going on our vacation this year? I go, I can't take a vacation. <laughs> I gotta keep grinding, da, da, da. So finally I told her, I said, well, I tell you what, I'll take a vacation. We'll go to Scotland as long as I come back with a film. And uh, she was a sporting creature. Said, okay, and so off we went and we made this film and uh, it's quite delightful in its own way
0: so you just touched on something that I I always like to talk to uh, you know artists about and you brought up the grind you know that you are always grinding through and 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 stuff so I mean do you consider yourself a grinder when it comes to uh, your process that you just keep going and going and going
1: I think so Um, I mean Life, life's a grind, you know. Yeah. Uh, if you're gonna, if you're gonna try and accomplish something, uh, it's you have to keep grinding. It's just what is. Now I know that, you know, there are this all stuff of being in the moment and doing this and doing that, where you know it's supposed to glide through life without grinding too hard. But I don't know how to do that exactly. Uh, that's difficult
0: for me, yeah, that's what i when i I talk to people and uh, about it, and you know I say I think there's always a misconception of you know you're you're inspired and you have this big burst, and there there you have the output, you know, and I say, I don't know for it might be that way for other people, but for me it's always it's always a grind, and you know that's the only thing i know and and obviously i'm I'm, I'm comfortable with that um and and I do definitely think that that's life, right? You just you, whether you're you're writing or you're filming or whatever, you know. You, I always say, you know, you just show up to the page um, every day. You know, especially when you're doing that first draft, and it takes everything because no matter how good yesterday was, and you can be on cloud nine with with what the work that you had, and then the next day you're sitting there at that you know at that blank page. And the only way you can really get through that, in my, my view, for me, at least, is is the grind. It's just it's just grinding through. And sometimes it's just throwing up on the page and, and and cleaning it up into something one day. But, you know, the only way is just just a grind, I think.
1: Well, for me, that's for sure. And it sounds like it for you. I, I'm sure that some people, you know... Um, Shakespeare, maybe, or, or uh, I don't know. C- certain writers, it, it seems to just flow off. And uh, Oscar Wilde, you know, these guys, maybe brilliant, brilliant minds uh, that have the ability with, and the facility with language, can just knock it off. But on the other hand, if you dig deep enough in those things, you realize. Well, they were pulling a lot of stuff out of themselves, and uh, and so maybe it wasn't that easy.
0: Yeah, that's 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 true. Um, so, you know, how can listeners, all of us, stay up on what's happening with Night Driver and any other projects that you're working on?
1: Well, I I have a book I'm supposed to be writing right now, and uh, I I will. I understand how the motion picture business works in terms of uh, running a, a film out to its logical conclusion, although that's changed so much in the last decades. It used to be, of course, you know, they'd make a hundred prints and they'd send them around the country to major spots and see how it did, and then. They'd order more prints, and it looked like there was some interest. And uh, then this character came along who was head of Paramount at the time, and he came up with the idea of you know having three thousand prints, and advertising this thing, and and saturating the, the market with it. Well, of course they spent a lot of money on advertising. And hopefully they had a big buffo weekend, uh, or two before the audience caught on that the picture was a dog. And, uh, so that's still something that's going on. Although now with the, uh, more independent films being made, fortunately, uh, that equation has changed again, but the major studios are still ordering 3,500 prints just for this country alone. So that's a long way of saying that uh, I'm not too sure how a book works, exact. except that uh, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Uh, I believe in the book, there's always that, that insecurity when you first finish it and you hand it to somebody and you say, well, let me know what you think. Well, enough people have come by and said, you know, I really think it's a good book, uh, then suddenly your your courage mounts. It's a difficult thing when something's so personal to you. Yeah. And uh, that's it.
0: Yeah, I know I, I described it to someone as I always get this feeling whenever I have a party and you put all the work into planning the party and already in about 15, 20 minutes, half hour before the party starts, I always get this sinking feeling, Oh, what if nobody shows up? You know, I did all this work and 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 nobody comes. And I, I always get that, you know, the feeling after the work's done and, and you've put yourself out and you have effect, let it go. And then it's out there to have its its life of its own. Um and, and you don't really know what's gonna happen. And and it can take so many twists and turns. And when you think something's down, then something can lift it back up. So I, I definitely um <clears throat> think you know you'll you'll have more than a few people that are saying it's it's a great book i thoroughly enjoyed it um recommend it to all the listeners if you haven't picked it up uh any final words you want to share with listeners
1: no i'm looking forward to reading your book doug about the five guys sitting around a blackjack table that sounds (laughs) breaking to me and uh i thank you very much for your interest and uh Working away on another book, but I don't want to talk about it right now. But uh, meanwhile, have a look at Night Driver.
0: Well, we'll definitely look forward to that to that new one and and um, enjoy to see what happens with Night Driver. So, thanks everyone for listening to Rare Bird Radio. I'm Doug Cooper, author of the award-winning fiction Outside In and Investment Club. This podcast is sponsored by Rare Bird Books. Based in Los Angeles, a publisher of 50 plus books per year, distributed worldwide by PGW. Thanks again to Ron Colby for joining us in conversation to talk about his wonderful book, Night Driver.